This is Bloomberg Business of Sports. The world's changing. And what are things we can do to, to transform our business and engage our fans globally in different ways? People are using their name and likeness to create more opportunities, more stakes in companies. In order to turn the organization around, we had to turn it around not only just on the baseball operations side, but on the business operations side. Football and any other sport is very difficult, but I like to broaden my horizons and be able to expand sports. You need to be consumed live. And that's a big competitive advantage for intellectual property holders of sports content in the media landscape. Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, everyone. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Mike Lynch. And I'm Michael Barr. Over the next hour, we will explore the big money issues in the world of sports and talk to some of the biggest players in the industry. So, guys, uh, we've got a really interesting show coming up. We're going to hear from John Abamondi. He is the CEO of BSE Global. But first, let's talk about some of the things going on in the world of sports that really may have a profound impact on sports across the globe. I want to start with Naomi Osaka, of course, champion tennis player, withdrawing from the French Open, citing some mental health concerns. And it all goes back to her unwillingness and her decision to participate in some media availabilities. Let's listen to part of a press conference from back at the Australian Open where you start to get a sense of of what she's talking about. Why were you so nervous when she was the one in her first Grand Slam final? (laughs) I don't know. Uh, Ask my nerves. Um, Why was I so nervous? I think you know, you want to win a Grand Slam, you know what I mean? Like, you don't go into a final wanting to be the runner-up. For me, I feel like every opportunity that I play a slam is an opportunity to win a slam. So I think maybe I put that pressure on myself um, too much, but uh, it's honestly, it's working out in my favor right now. So, And so, guys, when you hear that, you do start to get a feel for what these athletes encounter. And yet, this is a really complicated issue in many ways. This is something, at least from my perspective, this is something where you have young athletes who are dealing with incredible amounts of pressure. They've got people asking them questions literally minutes after they come off the court. And yet, you have people arguing, you know, loudly and pretty vociferously, Lynchy, and you've been in I would dare say thousands of press conferences over the course uh, of your career. This is part of the job in, in some ways. That's the argument you hear from the other side. So, what do you make of it? Well, until you've walked in her shoes, you really can't uh, identify with, with what she's going through. She yeah. said that ever since uh, 2018 at the U.S. Open, she went through huge waves of anxiety before she went out for her mandatory press conferences. And if you play in a Grand Slam and you go all the way, I think you have to have eight or nine of those yeah. uh, before you go. And so, you know, I, I feel bad. As a dad of three daughters, uh, I want to put my arm around her and, 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 and console her and comfort her. Bar, what do you make? This is turned into something way more than the game mm. of tennis, and and it has brought mental health to the forefront. Uh, what I think about is at least Naomi Osaka has the means to say, hey, you know what, I need to step back and, and work on me. I worry about the people that don't have the means and, and have to keep going and going and going. Uh, they need help too, so I... I just say a prayer for uh, Naomi Osaka, and I say a prayer for all those other people out there. 
I'll tell you another thoughtful athlete uh, who I've gotten to know uh, pretty well is Paul Rabel. Um, he is the co-founder of the Premier Lacrosse League, along with his brother Mike Rabel. Uh, I got together with them earlier this week to discuss a new round of investment, including from a name very familiar to you, Lynchy, uh, the Kraft family coming in mm-hmm. to the Premier Lacrosse League uh, investment crew. Uh, here's what Paul had to say about what that money will be used for and why they took this investment now. We've been really selective and we've been fortunate to be in a position where we can add new investors like Arctos and the Crafts based on improving the, the big areas of, of what it takes to build a professional sports league. You look at media, sponsorship, tickets, merchandise, youth, and then underneath all of it, they all plug in the product. So product improvement is something that all of our investors trust us as lacrosse natives to really like, continue to improve and focus on. And where they add value are each of those kind of five buckets that I had mentioned. So when you have someone like Joe Ty, who grew up playing lacrosse, who has one of the strongest pulses in international business through Alibaba, and then his ownership with the Brooklyn Nets on the NBA side, he's a really unique investor and he's on our board. Then you have folks like HBSE, you have the Crafts, you have Rain, you have Churnin, and there are groups that have not only ownership positions in pro sports leagues that are outside of Big Four, but they specialize in new media. And so if you can get distribution and media down, which has become pronged out beyond just linear, that's where uh, we really learn. And something that I, I continue to learn from Mike regularly is, is how often we tap into our ownership group for introductions, for advice, for strategy. And interesting to note, uh, Lynchy, that not only are the crafts on board, but re-upping is someone we're going to talk about later on in this show. Joe Sy, the owner of the Brooklyn yeah. Nets, he is a former college lacrosse player himself. He understands the game and is, you know, quite literally putting his money where his mouth is. Uh, lacrosse, man, I know it well. It's a juggernaut. I mean, and certainly worth watching as a very fast-growing business. Well, it's uh, had a direct effect on on baseball players, especially young players in junior high school and high school. A lot of them are going for lacrosse right now. But as we've come to learn uh, over the years, uh, TV contracts really dominate how successful leagues are going to be and how players are going to be paid. Well, and, and Barr, it's interesting. I know you've spent some time with Paul Rabel over the years as well. I mean, this is something that they have just methodically put together. They've now consolidated with Major League Lacrosse. And so you have a, a top-tier professional league, really, for the first time for this sport. They have Olympic ambitions to bring it back to the Olympics. And uh, the, the sky's the limit in many ways for these guys. I love the Rabel brothers. You can bring up the topic of carpet lint, and they will make it interesting. <laughs> they are great to listen to. I, I, I respect and admire them. And like you said, they are putting lacrosse on the map. And and every day, uh, just because one of the affiliation uh, with Rabels, but two more and more, I'm just like, okay, let me see what's happening in lacrosse today. And, and it, salute to them, and it's just going to grow and grow. Yeah, so uh, opening weekend is this weekend uh, at Gillette Stadium. So they got the landlord to come on board uh, as an investor. And so a lot of really exciting things happening there, that's for sure. All right, so here's your throwback story of the week, courtesy of our friends over at Sportico. Wait for it, Lynchy. The USFL 
it's coming <laughs> back. You know, history uh, maybe does repeat itself sometimes. We saw the XFL try and come back uh, unsuccessfully. And now the USFL. Remember the USFL? Do I remember it? It played a big part in our coverage here because Doug Flutie was signed to a personal services contract by Donald Trump of the uh, of the New, New Jersey, uh, what were they, Generals. Generals. And he had Herschel Walker in the backfield there. They had some great players in that league. They had Steve Young. They had Reggie White. They had uh, Jim Kelly. They had Mike Rozier. They didn't last too long, but they sure were fun to watch. And it gave people something to, if people just want football 12 months a year, I think of all the of the XFL and all these uh, p- p- products that have been thrown out and have not survived, the USFL, I think, was the most entertaining of them all. Well, it's fascinating, Barr, to think about this because, and I think I mentioned this on this show maybe last week or the week before, I just happened to be reading Steve Young's autobiography right now, which was co-written with our buddy Jeff Benedict, who wrote that terrific book about uh, the Patriots and, and the crafts called The Dynasty. He wrote this book called QB with Steve Young, and he goes in depth about that time because Steve Young, who was the number one draft pick in the NFL, was also the number one draft pick in the USFL. He opted for the USFL initially. He went to play in Los Angeles, and it was a debacle in many ways, <laughs> the, the way he describes it. And he talks about, in fact, working through the contract with last week's guest, Lee Steinberg, and, you know, just the crazy ownership. And, I mean, it just it ended in, in tears and lawsuits and a lot of lost revenue. But here we are again. Well, here, here comes Geezer Barr and uh, and Lynchy. We we both covered it. Uh, I, I remember uh, the the Panthers were were a team that we had. They played at the old Silverdome, and I was a young man, and I was holding the parabolic mic. And here comes a sweep, and it sounded like a thunderous horse herd coming at me. And the guy in the booth, the producer, just says, "Whatever you do, don't wreck the mic." I'm like, "Thank you." <laughs> <laughs> but I remember those times, and it's it's sad that it folded up. But uh, you know, it's. We're going to see what's going to happen again. I hope maybe uh, they can take another stab at it and maybe uh, have some high talent like we had in the past. Well, that, I mean, as we take the lessons from, from history, and, and these are all these topics we're talking about are, are intertwined in many ways, Lynchy, and I think you know this well. It, it all comes down to the talent on the field and whether you can get the best players in the game. That's what's held back in many ways the growth of Major League Soccer. MLS does not draw the best players in the world. The best American players, even, tend to go to Europe. You know, you had Pulisic playing in playing for Chelsea and, and winning the Champions League. That was a big deal. That's the pinnacle of the sport. Can the USFL do what it at least initially did, which is draw the very best players out of college? The way they were able to do it with Steve Young, if you recall, and Herschel Walker and Reggie White was... They were paying them a lot more money than they could make in the NFL at the time. So that, to me, I don't know about you, that, to me, is the big question mark. Is like, can they pay up for the best talent? Well, there's, there are slots now in the National Football League of what, what rookies can make in their first year, depending on where you are drafted in the first round. So they're going to have to top that. Uh, we'll, see, we'll see the rating going on like we saw in the 1980s. Uh, teams uh, with 
getting players to come out of college and go to uh, the USFL. It's a TV contract. Fox Sports uh, has the contract right now. And as Lee Steinberg says, everything is dictated by the television contract. I don't think they'll be as successful as the American Football League in the 60s, which was so strong it forced a merger with the National Football League. Uh, But you've got to have stars. You can't tune in and just see... You know, Michael Barr, Mike Lynch, and Jason Kelly uh, in the backfield for the uh, New Jersey Generals on Sunday afternoon in March. You need some big names. Today, we're talking about the New York team that is advancing in the NBA playoffs. Talking about your Brooklyn Nets, who uh, they knocked off Lynch's Boston <laughs> Celtics, uh, just to, you know, bring you up to speed. Durant with 24, Kyrie Irving with 25, and that's it. It's the end of the line for the Boston Celtics as the Brooklyn Nets will advance to round two. So we're happy to be speaking with Brooklyn Sports and Entertainment Global. You might know it as BSE Global. The CEO, John Abamondi. John, really good to have you with us. What a week. The NBA playoffs, there's nothing like it. What's your life like right now? Like, what is your day-to-day? Well, thanks for having me on, guys. And, uh, hey, Lynch, sorry about that, man, but it had to be done. (laughs) You're breaking up, John, again. I can't hear you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's been a pretty crazy year uh, for for everybody, uh, uh, that's for sure. You know, I mean, listen, I think the the team on the court uh, is, you know, the team looks impressive right now, and, and we have a long way to go. Uh, but we're, we're pleased that everybody, that most of our players are healthy and that uh, folks are gelling at the right time. So uh, just trying to stay humble, stay focused, and uh, take it one game at a time. Um, you know, on, on the business side of things, I, I think the big news, obviously, has been what's happened in the last month uh, with the dramatic improvements in this fight against COVID, uh, the relaxation, you know, started by the CDC and various guidelines. The state of New York has implemented those as well. And, and uh, our fans, who were largely locked out of Barclays Center this year, uh, are back in full force and cheering this team on and having a great time on this ride for as long as it goes. And kudos to BSE. And I'm not trying to blow smoke. No, the Barclays Center is just a magnificent facility. What revenue sources do you see in the future down the road now that COVID restrictions are easing? Well, I mean, the, the biggest one is obviously having fans back in the building. I mean, that's just so essential to, I mean, it sounds redundant to even say it, right? But having fans in the building is so essential to the experience of live sports. Uh, you know, we, we ran a television show for a year, basically, and uh, started having some fans back in the building earlier this year. But now that they're back, that's so crucial to our business. It's what we do. We bring people together and, and entertain them. And, and, you know, we do that in music, too, obviously. Mm-hmm. But, but uh, our bread and butter is live sports, live basketball. And there's just nothing like being in an arena, high-fiving a stranger, you know, and, and uh, watching, watching the Nets play live. Hey, John, it's uh, Lynchy up here in Boston. Uh, I will forgive you for eliminating my Boston Celtics. And, uh, <laughs> talk about the, uh, uh, the, uh, the impact uh, coming off pandemic. Season ticket holders, how many you retained, how many you lost, advertisers, et cetera. I know we talked to Randy Levine uh, about six months ago, and you know the Mighty Yankees even had lost a lot of longtime um, uh, sponsors and advertisers. Uh, how did you folks fare? Yeah, you know, it's interesting, and I think um, – the the timing of each sports season really really sort of impacts how you experience things, right? So um, with us, uh, you know, I wouldn't say that we lost season ticket holders. We we know where to find them. They know where to find us. But you know, we had thousands and thousands of season ticket holders last year who we had a 
go out to in, in December, I think it was, uh, shortly before the start of the season, and just say, hey, we're really sorry. We're just not going to be able to offer season tickets this year. And you'll recall we played December and January without any fans in the building, and then and then the state of New York relaxed it a little bit, and we, we were able to go to 10%, which for us is a little under 2,000 people. Um, so so most of our season ticket holders uh, have, have come back for next year. We've got a lot of new ones, too, uh, that, that are jumping, jumping aboard. Um, so it's just a strange year in the sense that we kind of didn't have season ticket holders for, for like basically a year. John, you know, one of the things that you guys seem to have worked on is something that everybody who, you know, lived through the pandemic can probably associate with. We're spending a lot of time in our homes and looking around being like, well, we could fix this up. We could fix that up. Going to be spending more time here. People are going to be coming back. You guys did the same thing with, with Barclays Center. Tell us about some of the CapEx that you put to work and, and some of the improvements you did uh, there at home. For a minute there, I thought you were going to get on me for not making more progress on, on the list of projects around the house. My wife, my wife me. So You're like, wow, you guys you really go it. deep on this show. Yeah, you did your research, <laughs> I, I promise I'm going to get that thing painted. Um, <laughs> no, <laughs> we, we've, uh, yeah, we, we did, like a lot of places. I mean, but we really felt that, listen, we, we wanted to use this time when we weren't able to host as many fans um, you know, to sort of go on offense rather than defense and, and think about, you know, uh, how, how can we invest in the building and the experience so that when we do bring fans back, um, that the experience is even greater than it was. Now, I'll be honest with you. We got caught a little bit by surprise. We've got a full building faster than I would have thought, right, if you would asked me a few months ago. Uh, but that's great. Uh, so the fans are coming to the arena for the playoffs today. They're getting to see some of those changes already because they're, they're already done. Uh, but we've got even more coming for the fall. So in terms of the stuff that we've invested in uh, and that's open now, we, we, we just opened a new team store on Flatbush. Um, it's, it, we think it's really slick. It's a, about twice the size of our old team store, and um, the fans have really responded well to it. So I encourage folks to come by and, and uh, check it out and pick up some, some cool Nets gear. Uh, we've also... Uh, built new entrances to the building to sort of relieve some of that congestion that, that we, like a lot of buildings, get uh, with, with late arriving crowds. Uh, so those will be open again. Hopefully will make a difference and, and make people's experience a little more smooth and seamless. We opened a new um, store in conjunction with our partner Amex that's on the main concourse. It's really, really uh, innovative technology. It allows you to simply tap your Amex card as you walk into the store you can pick up whatever items you want, and then there's no checkout. You just you just cruise right out with your sodas and your snacks, whatever else you picked up. Uh, there's no checkout, and so it really helps a fan, you know, who just wants to run up there, grab a drink, and get back to their the seat uh, as quickly as possible. It helps them not miss any of the action. Um, and then in the fall, we have a bunch more stuff coming too, and, and probably the biggest one, which we've already announced, is our our new courtside club, which we're calling the Crown Club, and we've partnered with. Uh, a wonderful designer named Ken Folk and uh, Major Food Groups, which is the, the, the group behind uh, The Grill, Carbone, Dirty French, a lot of really famous restaurants here in New York City. And so we think, that, and you know, this tells you the, what we're aiming for at least, uh, we think it's going to be the best-reviewed restaurant opening in New York this year. Um, and so really trying to raise the bar for what the dining experience in a sporting arena is like. So, John, I want to talk about the broader BSE empire in a second, but let's stick with the Nets, if we can, just just for one more minute. I mean, 
shaping this brand, this is a brand that has really evolved and grown and and really come into its own, it feels like, in the past few years. Talk about that process if you can. This is a massive media market. It's a massively populated market. Very passionate sports fans across all sports, as you know. How do you differentiate? How do you find that right message? Uh, It's such a great question. Uh, So thank you for asking it. Uh, Look, I think it starts with two things. The first thing, obviously, is the product on the court. You know, uh, we want to bring world-class basketball to Brooklyn. I mean, that was our mission from the beginning. And you know, as we as we interpret that today, right? It's, we're trying to win a championship. So you know, it all starts there. Uh, but I think beyond that, we do spend a lot of time thinking about what makes Brooklyn unique. And I don't mean the Brooklyn Nets, but Brooklyn the borough. Um, Brooklyn's become this global icon of fashion and sports and art and culture and music. And, and it's just this uh, diverse melting pot of all of that. And so we try to represent that and reflect that back into the world. And, you know, I think one great example is the City Edition uniform that we launched this year, uh, which was done in partnership with the estate of Jean-Michel Basquiat, uh, obviously a famous Brooklyn artist. Uh, really an icon of the of the modern art world. And I, I think, and I say this humbly, but I think that that uniform is something that only the Brooklyn Nets could have done. Um, and I think it's really authentic to the brand that we're trying to, to build uh, and how we want to present ourselves in the world. And hopefully um, our fans agree. It certainly seems that they've responded to that uniform. So, John, let's talk about sort of the business of the NBA for a second, if we can. I mean, and and you alluded to this earlier, each pro sport is different. You've worked across a number of them, and and each pro sport was different across the course of of the last year. How would you characterize sort of the business of pro basketball at this moment, given everything that we've seen, not just from a global pandemic perspective, but from an activism perspective, from a fan engagement, from a player empowerment perspective – you know, all these things sort of mixing together. What has that ultimately done for the business of basketball? You know, I think this has been a really, um, this pandemic has been so hard on so many people. And, and I don't want to gloss over the human element, right? Um, a lot of people uh, lost loved ones. So this is not just about business. But from a business perspective, I think a lot of people, a lot of sports organizations were really tested by this. and And I think that, what the NBA has shown is that, you know, when put to the test, our business model stood up pretty well. Uh, the interest in this league is high. And, and the fact that our players care about the issues of the day, the fact that they're active and, and opinionated and speaking out on, on social justice matters, I think, it's, I think it's, um, it's a good thing. It's a good thing for our society because these folks are leaders. Uh, but I also think it's good for the league because it, it, it helps us stay relevant in people's lives beyond the court. Um, and so when you look at our players and you realize that, you know, an NBA star is as likely to be on the cover of GQ as they are to be on the cover of Sports Illustrated, um, you realize that, that, that we have really become part of the fabric of society. And I'm super bullish on, on the NBA as, as a league going forward. And, and I really think that we've only begun to see the potential of this league globally. John, we've heard uh, you talk a little bit about the Crown Club and, of course, the American Express uh, store that's coming in there. What about the, the gals and guys that are sitting in, in the upper deck, you know, buying, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, the nosebleed section, the cheap seats? Uh, what, what's, what's new for them? 
Um, well, I'm, I'm going to correct you slightly. We do have inexpensive okay. tickets, but we don't have any, we don't have any bad ones. So, uh, <laughs> as you know, it's a very intimate arena. Um, uh, you know, a couple thousand people smaller than than say uh, the one up in Boston. But um, so we we think there's no bad seats. So, um, but we have lots of we have lots of stuff uh, coming from them too. One of the things that folks who've been to our arena will know is you know, about. Ten years ago, when the building opened, we 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 pioneered this concept called Brooklyn Taste, where, as I mentioned earlier, we try to bring in a lot of local flavors, local brands, uh, things like Junior's Cheesecake, for example, to try to really be an authentic representation of Brooklyn. So that whole program is getting a a, a big lift this year, a refresh, if you will. And so wherever you sit in the building, um, you're going to be able to enjoy some of your favorite local brands from across the borough, uh, as well as our, a new program we're calling Brooklyn Toast which will bring in some of the best craft cocktail makers uh, from around the borough. And, you know, those of you who enjoy a cocktail, you, you typically know when you go to an arena, it's like, you know, vodka soda from a gun uh, and not very inspiring. And so what we really wanted to do was find a way to bring uh, some of these great craft cocktail uh, folks who are doing amazing work in, in, throughout the borough and uh, and bring them to life within the arena, too. So. Uh, you can look forward to that in the for deck. So, John, let's talk about this sports empire that you guys are growing. Um, <laughs> what's the what's the underlying strategy? What's the ethos here that you and Joe have set out in terms of how you pick the properties and how they fit together? Yeah, I, thanks. I, you know, empire may be too strong of a word, but. Um, <laughs> You know, portfolio. It's, it's a portfolio. <laughs> for sure. For sure. I mean, look, we we um, we try to think about it, uh, about being authentic to being really local and also being global. Right. And, and, and so that's an interesting balance. We want to be really local with with both the Nets and the Liberty, uh, as well as the Long Island Nets and, and, and our 2K League team, uh, Nets GC. We, we really want to represent Brooklyn and be authentic to Brooklyn. We're not the. We're not the uh, New York Nets. We're the Brooklyn Nets, and and there's a difference. But at the same time, we want to be global, right? And so we want to be a brand that is followed around the world and and, and is recognized wherever people love and appreciate great basketball. Um, so that's sort of like the overarching theme, um, and that really influences everything that we try to do. John, this this uh, team store Brooklyn style. Uh, what do you envision that uh, will? Uh, Foot traffic. Uh, once you get up and running, uh, with the, as the team continues to play well, foot traffic and, and online uh, purchases. Yeah, we we've um, we've already seen it in game uh, that our sales have more than doubled uh, from from the prior year. Uh, some of that obviously is the excitement around this team specifically, and people haven't been in, uh, been out and shopping as much over the last year. But uh, there's no doubt that 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 you know. Folks are responding to the store, and, and it's just a really clean, bright, well-lit environment, and uh, um, our fans love it. So I encourage you to come on out, get a custom jersey, and uh, represent the Nets. You know, John, as, as you think over the, the course of your career, I mean, you're a guy who has spent time at, at the highest levels of a number of professional sports, um, you know, including Major League Baseball. You worked at the Cardinals, worked with the Cardinals as an assistant GM. You know, so you understand the the evolution of the business and the business of, of playing these professional sports and 
and what a fascinating experiment you guys are, are in the midst of conducting in many ways of building this team that, you know, just this week, the New York Times in a profile of Kevin Durant said, you know, could be one of the greatest teams ever to take the court. I mean, teams are put together in, in a different way. And, and I know you have a whole team working on sort of the the basketball side of things. But as you look at it from a business person's perspective, what sort of allowed for this evolution to happen in terms of the way teams are put together? You know, with regards to us specifically, um, you know, I'd say it starts with, with two people, and, and that's Joe Sy, our owner, uh, who's shown a, um, not only a real passion for sports and, and for basketball in particular, uh, that it's impossible to fake, um, but also a willingness to invest resources into bringing championship caliber basketball to, to, to Brooklyn. So, you know, I, I think Joe gets uh, a ton of credit there. And I think our fans recognize that, that we're fortunate to have him, you know, at the top of the organization. But the other guy, uh, you know, no surprise here either is, is Sean Marks. And mm-hmm. it's just incredible what he's done. When you think about um, the franchise that he inherited when he came here five years ago uh, and, you know, this was a job that it was sort of viewed as like, who, who, who'd want to take that job, right? right. Um, they had no draft picks, they had no talent. Um, and, and he's, he's run his plays to perfection. And, um, and, and so Sean's been a great partner for me personally. Um, but I think every sports fan can look at what he's done and, and really admire the way that he's, he's built this team. Well, because part of it, if I may, I mean, part of the, the decision-making has been, you know, something of an appetite not just to spend money but but you know take some take some shots take some risk uh in some ways you think about the head coaching decision you know hiring a first-time head coach and you know all these things that that presumably do make you sort of stand out as an organization and i wonder if from a cultural perspective is that something that's sort of baked in with you and joe and sean like how what's sort of underneath the hood there yeah, it's look. This is a um, this is a salary cap league, right? Yeah. And so, and 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 not only is there a team wide salary cap, there's also limits, as you guys know, on on what individual players can be paid, right? And so, uh, you know, when you're building a team, and you know, Sean's the expert here, and and I'm, I don't want to speak for him, but I think when you're building a team, you know, when you have those constraints in place, like money doesn't solve every problem. Yeah, right? and so you you really need to be a place where talented employees want to come work, right? And that's true on the business side, and it's true on the player side. And so, you know, Sean's employees are our players, obviously, and and he's managed to create a kind of culture where uh, the best players in the world want to be here. Um, and I think you saw that with with. with with James and prior to that, you saw that with, with Kevin and Kyrie and, and you've seen it with, you know, up and down a roster. So, uh, and, and you saw it, uh, with, with Steve as well. So, you know, I think that's it. I mean, we, we spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, how do we kind of try to be the kind of organization where, whether you're, you know, somebody working in ticket sales or you're a power forward, this is the place you want to be. Um, and, and I think, you know, as I said at the beginning, money is, is not the only answer there. Uh, a lot of it is culture. John, I want to go back to the uh, uh, how you created that culture to make the Nets, which was not really a destination a lot of players wanted to uh, to land, 
uh, made it a destination now as opposed to a jumping off point uh, it, uh, not too many years past? You know, I, I think that's, you know, I hate to duck your question, but I think it's probably a question best put to Sean. I've been here less than a yep. year, right? Sean's been at this yep. for five years. And, and so, you know, I don't want to speak for how he did his work. But, you know, I will say this. We, we talk a lot, and, and, um, and we try to emulate each other. And, you know, one of the things that we, we – when I say emulate each other, I mean in terms of the cultural touchstones of the broader organization. We don't want an organization where the basketball department is run one way and the business side is run another way. And so one of those touchstones that we talk about a lot is disagree and commit, right? And, and so what does that mean? It means – you know, when, when you're in a meeting, whether it's, you know, you're reviewing film uh, on the basketball side or you're in some kind of a marketing strategy meeting on the business side, people are going to have different opinions. Um, and we want to create the kind of environment where people feel comfortable sharing those opinions, challenging each other, debating. Uh, we don't want a bunch of yes people. Um, but then the other part of that sentence is then commit, right? So after the debate is over, after we've chosen on a, on a course of action, like we're all committed to it. It's not, you know, this person's idea won and that person's idea lost. It's the groups. The group chose this course of action, and we're all committed to it. And we're even if you initially disagreed, uh, you're rooting for that to succeed. Um, and so I think that's one example of how it carries over be- between both sides of the organization. So, John, as we wrap up here, I mean, I do want to ask you, as you say, you know, your tenure has been um, relatively brief thus far. Look ahead for us. Look around the corner. You know, what are your big kind of business objectives for this for this franchise or this sort of series, this portfolio of franchises? You know, as you get your team together, um, you know, obviously, as you say, the product's got to be great on the court. You want to win a championship. You guys, you know, by all accounts, will likely make a pretty deep run this year, and, and you've got a good team going forward. But building this brand, building this company, um, you know, what do you look around the corner and see? You know, I think um, it's a great question because answering it or, or sort of tackling that challenge requires a mix of, you know, patience and urgency. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's another pet phrase of ours that we use all the time, patience and urgency. And, and so, you know, we, we know that uh, windows of opportunity are, are, you know, fleeting. They're narrow, right? These, these, uh, these players are in their prime and they're performing at a high level right now. And, and you know, but, but things change over time. People get hurt. People get older. Um, and, and we really want to maximize this opportunity to, you know, win fans. And, and for us, that means mostly here in Brooklyn, it means winning the next generation of fans. And one of the things that our research shows us is when you look at young people in the borough, kids, 8, 9, 10, 12 years old, um, they're overwhelmingly next fans. And, and that's a really good sign for us. Now, uh, our research also shows that it takes about 20 years for a 12-year-old to become a 32-year-old. So um, that's the part where you have to be a little patient. Um, but we think that if we can make a deep run uh, and give those kids something to uh, remember this summer, uh, that they'll be Nets fans for life. And, um, and we hope to be worthy of that. Well, John, it's been really, really good spending some time with you. Thank you so much. It obviously uh, is such an exciting time for your fan base, for your organization. And, uh, I mean, really, over the course of this season, 
you guys really went from like, hey, this is a really interesting team to like, wait, hold on a second. Like this is this this could be something historic that that we're witnessing. So a lot of a lot of heat, as they say, uh, around this franchise. So congratulations on that and, and best of luck. We appreciate the time. Thank you, guys. Really appreciate it. So, guys, interesting to to get some time with uh, John Abamandi over at uh, BSC Global. Obviously, the Nets are are the big story uh, in New York sports right now, to be honest. Knicks are out, and uh, the Nets are in, and this is an exciting franchise. You arguably have a generational combination, the likes of which we haven't seen um, since that trio down in Miami in terms of just high-profile Incredible, exciting players. And at the same time, Lynchy, as we talked about with John, it ain't easy to differentiate yourself in a crowded media market. No, and they've done a great job. I mean, a lot of teams have had what they call the big three. Uh, Miami had it, the Celtics had it, and the Lakers have had it. And now Brooklyn has it. And they may have three of the best five players in the NBA in their starting lineup all the time. And it has become a destination, as I asked him, and rather than a jumping-off point, which it had been in years past. And I love this little uh, uh, slogan of disagree and commit. Yeah. Get together, disagree. I don't want a bunch of yes people. Once we have our uh, our point, our point made, and our direction and our compass is set, uh, just commit. I love it. That's a great, great business formula. Well, and Michael Barr, a lot of credit obviously has to go to his boss uh, Joe Sai, who is the owner, who you know has been transformative in many ways. Obviously, a global thinker as the vice chairman and co-founder of Alibaba, but has been you know instrumental in helping this franchise take some risks and and really put themselves in a position to win but ultimately as John said you got to get fans in the door and you got to you know have that committed fan base I remember when Josiah bought that team from uh from MSG uh bought the Liberty uh in 2019 and then all of a sudden we hit the the pandemic uh, but I thought, you know, with uh, Joe Sy's mentality, he, he's not going to worry about that because things are going to even out on the back end. Uh, and we're going to see it happen soon enough. And, and I got two takeaways from this. One, Lynchy, you're the man because you kept composed because once the <laughs> Nets took the Celtics out, there was a big front office change with the Celtics. And then there was the the big thing about uh, Kyrie stepping on Lucky, and you kept your composure, man. I, I'm <laughs> proud of you. It was that was good. The second thing is that I'm I, that place, the Barclays Center, and I was saying that earlier, is a great place, a great facility because it, again, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It, it just reminded me, man, when the concerts start coming back. That place is going to rock, and and I'm just glad to see it, and I'm glad we're approaching the back end of COVID. All right. Well, uh, lots more basketball to, to talk about and lots more to watch. It's an exciting postseason, so uh, interesting to see you know how deep the Nets go. The expectations certainly are high. My goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since a kid. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike. We have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business of Sports, the number of the week. <laughs> you know, I, I was going to go another way, and then I, I took the cheap route out. So here is the question. Uh, as you know, the uh, Babe Ruth rookie card, it is uh, from the 1914 Baltimore News Babe Ruth card. It sold 
uh, during an auction by a collectible. Uh, now, the, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give you what the, the valuation is as the question because it's six million dollars, yep. and then the auction they they broke that. What I want to know is. <laughs> What was the card previously before that, and how much was the value? I guess that's what I want to know. What record did it break? It, it broke. It broke the record. The person, by the way, that bought that card anonymously did not reveal the the price, but it was over six million dollars. But the record card that was before that, I'll tell you right now, it was a Mickey Mantle yes. card. What was the valuation of that card? <sighs> I mean, the record. The, there have been a lot of records of late. Because wasn't there also? There was a LeBron rookie card, I believe, that also was was up there. It was um, up there. This is the Mickey Mantle card, though, that Mickey sold in a private transaction in January. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go five million. You know, I remember this story, and I thought there was a little symmetry to the year it came out and the value of the card. And it was uh, 1952, yeah. so I'm going to go 5.2. <laughs> These little Great stupid guy. things stick in, stick in my mind sometimes. Then <laughs> she, we're going to Vegas, baby. We're going to Vegas. <laughs> That's what it is, 5.2 million, man. Uh, I, I thought maybe I had a chance because six million for the rookie card was too easy. Lynchy, you're the man. I, there's nothing I can say. You you have been super duper, man. This, now, this, now, this, now I'm wondering if that card was in the little shoebox that yeah. my dad threw. Oh yeah. man, Jesus. here we go. I, you know, I didn't think about it when we brought the cards up. I'm sorry, man. It's, it's, it's going to be too soon. Forever. Forever. Uh, all right. You've been listening to the Bloomberg Business of Sports. We're here each and every week at the same time, plus online wherever you get your podcasts. Catch those Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. I'm Jason Kelly on Twitter at Jason Kelly News. I'm going to be watching a lot more playoff basketball. I know that we, a lot of us in the New York area, are going to be, you know, keyed up about the Nets uh, going forward. They are taking on the Milwaukee Bucks in in round two, Lynchy, and uh, it's going to be exciting. Sorry about your Celtics. Yeah, uh, we're going to probably watch the other series and root against the Nets for a little while, but that's a heck of a basketball team. Um, I'm Mike Lynch. You can follow me at LynchyWCVB. Look at the bright side, Lynchy. At least you made the playoffs. Pistons fans, <laughs> hey, man, we're crying big time. I'm Michael Barr on Twitter at Big Bar Sports. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world. Spread it out because it's super that way.